news all done, we're turning over to uh, Europe. And so, Taryn, what are we talking about today in terms of the European continent? Well, we've got a lot of news to get through, and we're going to go here country by country. If any of you listened to our episode a few weeks ago, we talked about the first round of voting in the Austrian election, where the runoff was split between an independent former Green Party co-leader, the 74-year-old Alexander van der Bellen, and the far-right leader of the Eurosceptic and anti-immigrant Freedom Party of Austria, a party founded in the 1950s by uh, far-right politicians with former ties to the Nazi regime. So approximately a week ago or two weeks ago now, we had the second round of voting to determine which of those two candidates would be the Austrian uh, president. Usually a ceremonial role, although both candidates had promised to be a lot more active in their presidency. And it's safe to say that a lot of European establishment politicians breathed a heavy sigh of relief as the independent former Green leader Alexander van der Bellen narrowly got through to the presidency, winning 50.3% of the vote. Wow, that is very narrow. It's, um, it's very narrow indeed. There hasn't been an election as divisive in Austria in a long time. We saw the president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, make a very rare political intervention in the days before the election, endorsing van der Bellen in the hopes of preventing the first far-right European head of state since the 1940s. And so what we've seen is Austria is a country deeply politically divided along lines of establishment politics of old and a new growing far right, something we've seen already happen in Poland with the Law and Justice Party and in Hungary with Viktor Orban's increasingly controversial rule. And so what, what do you think has fueled this, this far right growth in, in, in these countries, Poland and Austria, and to a certain extent all over Europe with the rise of parties in the United Kingdom like UKIP? Just all over. Europe seems to be leaning more towards the right, at least on the fringes. What do you reckon is causing that? Well, we think in particular Austria is a very interesting case because for the most part we've seen these sort of far-right and also far-left movements like Syriza in Greece generally result as a form of economic instability. And this is what makes Austria the very interesting case because as an economy in Europe, in the Eurozone, it's done incredibly well out of the past few years. There hasn't been any major societal upheaval or anything similar like that. Um, a lot of people, particularly in um, some major British papers such as the Financial Times, have actually cast the blame on a grand coalition where the two equivalents to National and Labour in Austria had been governing together for something like the past seven or eight years. And people have felt that this grand coalition has actually pushed a lot of dissatisfied Austrian voters further and further to the sidelines. And of course, in more recent months, we've seen the European refugee crisis raise a lot of troubling questions about identity politics for a great deal of Europeans. And so definitely uh, the flow of refugees coming from Syria uh, due to the rise of Islamic State in the area and Iraq as well as Libya and lots of countries. Like that. So I think that has a, a big lean on the, the way the European politics are going right now. Oh, we think definitely. We saw in the election Norbert Hofer, the far-right candidate, a great deal of his popularity stemmed from his promises that, as president, he would dismiss the elected parliament if they didn't do enough to curb the rise of immigration, the influx of refugees into Austrian borders. We also saw quite recently the Social Democrat Chancellor, or Prime Minister of Austria, have to step down after his own party felt betrayed by the Prime Minister's decision to impose a border fence along Austria's south. So it's certainly safe to say that it's the defining issue in Austria and a lot of Europe at the moment. And so uh, obviously this election has been won, not, not concisely, but fairly. What do you think is next to these far right-wing groups in Austria? Do you think they're just going to sit down or do you reckon there's going to be further political backlash? If so, what do you think that form that will take? Well, we think that 
the fact that a far-right candidate from a party that had previously existed more or less on the fringes of Austrian politics managing to get through to the second round and furthermore win 49.7% of the vote, it was an election so close that we didn't actually know the result until postal votes were counted. We think it's safe to say that the Freedom Party is not out of Austrian politics at all and we think we can expect them to put up a very convincing uh, fight in the upcoming parliamentary elections in the next one to two years. Um, so welcome back if you have if you've just started listening this is uh, Capital Hard Talk Radio on Wellington Access Radio 783 AM and now we're gonna have something from Jack. All right and so what else is happening in Europe moving on to the next little bit of news we've got? Well, of course, Austria isn't the only country going through an interesting time right now. Of course, we've seen a lot of the headlines dominated by what's been happening in France lately. And so give us a a brief outline of what's happening. Well, the socialist president, François Hollande, um, a few months ago tried to get through a series of economic and employment reforms. These are reforms that you generally see from most countries operating on a sort of neoliberal, centrist to centre-right assumption of politics that attempted to... um, Uh, make some changes to France's traditional 35-hour work week. It made it easier for employers to hire or fire people. But France operates on a very different sort of culture around work, and we've seen a great deal of backlash from the left in Austria. We saw, first of all, in April and May, Nuit Debout, or Up All Night, a youth protest movement sprang up and grained increasingly... um, drew massive crowds. Every night, young activists would meet in Palace de la République in in Paris and have these large political discussions. But more recently, we've seen a series of debilitating strikes organized by some of France's biggest labor unions attempting to undermine the president and undermine the chances of these labor reforms coming in. And this is at a very critically bad time for the president as he actually struggles with being um, one of the most unpopular presidents in French history. And furthermore, A great deal of these strikes are involving transport workers. We think that next week we might even see Air France pilots go on strike, which could not happen at a worse time for football supporters as the Euro 2016 football tournament is starting in France in a couple of weeks. And this is certainly something that French business interests and football fans don't want to see disrupted by labour strikes. This is certainly a bit of a crisis for France. What do you think is going to be the the way this is resolved? Do you think... Uh, Francois is going to bow to the wishes of of these protesting groups and move more towards his uh, democratic mandate or stick by his his guns and move more towards the centre? Unfortunately for Francois Hollande, um, the opinion prevailing among European commentators seems to be that this is a lose-lose for the president. Mm. He's earlier this year had to backslide on another policy proposal of his. Following the deadly Paris terror attacks last year, he attempted to impose a new legislation regarding um, stripping French citizens of their citizenship if they'd gone to Syria to fight. This met with a great deal of opposition from within and without the president's party, and his justice minister was made to resign, and ultimately Olan had to backtrack from that legislation, and it hurt him deeply in terms of approval ratings. And we think that whether or not Olan continues his course and puts him at odds with his socialist party prime minister, or if he bows and... Um, stays staunch, actually. We see that either way, it's not going to look good for his popularity. Um, Recent polling has shown that when the French presidential elections happen next year, um, um, recent polling has actually shown that Francois Hollande would lose convincingly to the far-right Marine Le Pen if he were to run for president. So I think the most immediate cause we can see is that people in the 
uh, Socialist Party are going to be trying their best to keep Francois Hollande from pursuing re-election next year. Do you think uh, that party has a chance of getting into re-election, or are we looking seriously at moving away from that party and into something more right-wing in France? Um, well, of course, the election is more than a year away, and this would have to depend on if Hollande does not stand for re-election, who else the socialists would put up as their candidate. But at the moment, it looks like what might convincingly happen would be the next presidential election in France would be decided between the centre-right and the far-right, and we'd see a lot of tactical voting to keep the far-right out, something we actually got a taste of last year during France's regional elections, where a lot of socialist voters had to sort of hold their noses and vote for the centre-right Republicans in an effort to keep out the National Front. All right. And so what do we have uh, else going on in Europe? And lastly, we've got perhaps... A little over three weeks now until the next general election is called in Spain. Um, if any of you might uh, follow Europe closely, you'll think, already. And that's because Spain had their elections last year, just a few days before Christmas. And in those intervening six months, deadlocked negotiations between the major parties have been completely stalled. There's been no ability to form a new government. And so... Some weeks ago, the king had to actually declare a fresh slate of elections. This is the first time since Spain transitioned to democracy in the 1970s they've been unable to form a government and had to call fresh elections. So we can see Spain certainly a new territory politically as well, as two new populist parties of both the left and right take on the traditional two center-left and center-right parties for the disaffected vote. And so in terms of forming government, how exactly does that happen, that they're simply not able to form a government? Well, what we saw happen was this resulted in the most fractured parliament in Spanish history. The center-right People's Party, roughly analogous to our national party, got the largest share of the seats, but far short of a majority. We saw that the um, center-left Socialist Party could conceivably form a coalition with the two new insurgent parties, Podemos of the far left and Ciudadanos, or Citizens, a centre-to-centre-right party attempting to base itself on a form of Spanish unionism opposed to regional independence and opposed to austerity. Unfortunately, we saw Podemos and Ciudadanos could not work together. Due to this question of regional independence, Podemos favoured binding referendum for regions like Catalonia, whereas Ciudadanos had actually been formed as a party opposed to any kind of regional independence, and so those negotiations were completely deadlocked. The last option on the table to form a majority in Parliament was a grand coalition between the centre-left and centre-right parties, something that we've seen happen in Germany for the past ten years, but the Socialist Party simply could not agree to that, and we're heading into fresh elections. And unfortunately for the Spanish public, who simply want a new government, opinion polling seems to show that the result of the next election will not be dramatically different from the current in terms of the ability to form a government. And so what do you think is going to happen in the, in the upcoming election? You mentioned the populist parties coming from both the left and the right. How do you think that's going to play out uh, for Spain? Well, we think that originally when this election result came through and that the populist parties were unable to form a government, we thought the idea of a second election would actually scare voters back into the traditional parties. But most opinion polling shows that this actually hasn't happened. If anything, the inability to form a government has boosted support for these new insurgent parties. Podemos seems to actually increase its vote share and its share of the seats in a new election, and we think it's entirely possible that the results could end up with the... Um, socialists and Podemos being able to form a government on their own, a um, leftist coalition.
All right, that's interesting. Uh, and so now we'll listen to some music, and then after our break, we'll move on to talk about the budget. So this is Take a Walk by Passion Pit. Welcome back to Capital Hard Talk here on Wellington Access Radio, 7.83am. I'm here with Taryn and Scott. My name is Jack, and if you're just joining us, we've just had a little bit of a discussion about the far right in Europe and how that's looking out, uh, radical policy changes in France, and a new Spanish election. But now we're going to talk about something that's been on everyone's mind since it was announced on the 26th of May, uh, just a few weeks ago, and that's the 2016 budget. Now, a background of the budget, every year, the ruling party, particularly the finance minister, who right now is the Honourable Bill English, announces a budget which details the spending of the government over the next year and outlines some core goals that the government wishes to achieve, as well as kind of having a bit of a reflection on the way that the fiscal policy of that government and just generally the economic output of the government and the country has been going. And so, Taryn, what do you think about the budget? You've had a, a bit of a time to have a look about it, and it's been all over the news for the last few weeks. What are your initial impressions of this budget? Well, I'd have to say my initial impressions tend to align with a lot of what we've heard in the press about the budget this year, which is it's uh, it's very insubstantial in terms of full detail or a full broad vision. We've heard a lot of people calling it a holding pattern budget, uh, a very sort of middling of the road budget, and we heard Winston Peters call it a, I'm, I'm not sure if I should say this on the radio, but if Winston Peters said it, we can say it, he called it a get stuffed budget. So there's been a lot of a very lukewarm reception, I suppose. Interesting. So now we'll, we'll take a look at um, the statistics on the budget. And so uh, the core goals of this national government supposedly are investing in a growing economy, and so they uh, predict a real GDP growth of 2.8% over, on average over the next five years. And so gross domestic products, is that's what it is, it's your imports minus uh, your exports in terms of a monetary value, uh, which is then divided uh, by the total population of a country. And it's, it's roughly the, the wealth of a country and its economic uh, prosperity, and so we have countries like Monaco, which have the highest, and countries like Somalia, who don't have any data. Um, and so this um, is per capita. Of this course. is yes, per capita. And so that's uh, on average of how many people exist in that country. And so a prediction of two point eight percent looks looks quite good on paper, and we'll see how that works. Uh, he also promised a rising surplus and debt falls to nineteen point three percent of GDP. Uh, and the average wage is expected to rise to sixty three thousand dollars a year by 2020 and so these are all just kind of uh, fiscal promises that are being made and predictions based on the way the economy is going and so we've seen uh, lots of investment in certain areas and not so many in others as well as some controversial additions to the budget such as a, a high tax on tobacco products which was called up by Winston Peters uh, in the house <laughs> and so in terms of what do you think the budget covers Taryn what do you think it really should have covered? Um. I think a fairly blaring sort of omission from this budget has to be the fact that it makes no reference at all to climate change hmm. in any way, shape, or form. We had some money put towards the uh, cleansing of rivers, but of course that's a very sort of base-level environmental analysis, and we've seen no real response to climate change in this budget or indeed the past budgets put out. And I've also heard... Um, a lot in the press saying that the 
finance is given out in this budget leave the possibilities open for tax cuts next year, which is of course always a nice little sweetening of the pot for the incumbent government in an election year. Yes, definitely, and we'll see this is this will be the second to last budget uh, given by this current sitting national government uh, due to the timing of the election next year, which I believe will be in the, the latter half of the year. Uh, we'll be getting another budget from Bill English, and so maybe this is this is considered to be a lot of people as kind of a set-up budget, putting all of the government's ducks in a row in order to release a, a really crash-hot budget, as they'd say, uh, <laughs> for the election year to really a- appease all their voters. And so there are a lot of areas in which uh, the funding has changed or increased, and the first one is, is an innovative New Zealand, and so the tagline here is a... Uh, that a $761 million package is being included to help further diversity and diversify the economy and support more jobs and high wages for New Zealanders in the decade ahead. Uh, and so there's a $411 million investment in science and education, $257 million investment in church re-education, and uh, $94 million for regional economic development. In terms of public infrastructure, $2.1 billion is being, support, uh, being put forward uh, with 833 million to new schools and classrooms, 857 million to delivering our future tax system, uh, so replacing our tax system, which is apparently a quarter of a century uh, old. Uh, $115 million for regional roads, $190 million for Kiwi Rail, $37 million to upgrade the and extend the New Zealand Cycle Trail. Uh, $19 million for National national Biocontaminant Laboratory. And now when it gets into some interesting stuff here, social investment and health investment. And so uh, the government has put forward $652 million into social investment and $2.2 million uh, into health. And that's, that's quite a lot considering the national government's usually had quite reserved spending when it comes to those two areas. And so we've seen stuff like a $1.6 billion for district health boards, $124 million uh, for Pharmac, $96 million for elective surgery, uh, $61 million for youth services. And so there's a lot being spent there, but uh, as has been previously mentioned, perhaps not enough. And so what do you think that actually means? Well, I mean, the budget seems... Interesting. And so what do you think uh, could really have been made in terms of progress on the environment? Because you're right to hear that there's no sort of mention of the environment here apart from a a brief uh, look at cleansing of the rivers. And is that something that's been omitted from most national budgets for a while? Why do you think the reason for that is? Well, obviously the major reason is, of course, that um, one of the major contributors to New Zealand economy is agriculture. And as a government that's particularly... Um, beholden to rural voters and agricultural voters for its majority and um, for its ability to govern, um, it's unlikely to see, frankly, either of the major two parties attempt to really take on any sort of environmental policy that's going to affect the um, uh, agricultural vote. We saw the very um, maligned Labour Party's previous governing attempt at the uh, what was derisively called the tax on cows farting, and since then we've seen very little... Um, interest in politics to bring this up again. But at the same time, it's always worth remembering that this is the first budget we've seen since New Zealand signed on to the COP21 Paris Climate Agreement. And 
we've pledged ourselves to implement these environmental goals. And of course, this budget shows very little indication that New Zealand is taking that obligation seriously in any way. We've seen no real subsidization towards energy efficient or sustainable energy. We've also seen here the, the emissions trading scheme, which is something that was a, a good attempt at uh, trying to level out uh, carbon emissions and other emissions of noxious uh, gases into the atmosphere is being phased out. That's right. Uh, in this government, and really all we're seeing here is $100 million over 10 years uh, to clean up degraded lakes, rivers, and streams. And that's, uh, that's approximately $10 million per year to remedy some of the worst rivers and waterways in the southern hemisphere and indeed even the world. And so uh, what do you think the government really should have been doing in terms of actual fiscal policy in order to meet that agreement of the Paris uh, Climate Agreement and what sort of obligations were laid out in that agreement? Well, the main obligation is to um, every country should aim to limit their emissions in a way that we can get uh, no more than 2%, um, 2 degrees of uh, global temperature growth over the um, next few decades. And of course, there's very little in the current budget that shows that New Zealand is in any way committed to limiting our emissions. And so we think a lot of things that could be seen were um, fiscal policies that promote sustainable energy we, um, or any sort of fiscal policies of government policies designed to phase out um, our existing mining operations. And we've seen none of that, of course, in this budget or in any of the previous budgets put out. And we think that it's um, it doesn't fill you with a lot of faith in the uh, way in which the government's handling their Paris climate commitments. Interesting. And so that'll be something that we'll probably have to keep an eye out on. Maybe we'll see something from the national government in terms of that in the next budget, uh, and we can see. And so what I want to talk about next is something that's perhaps the most controversial, and like I said earlier, has been brought into the House a lot, and it's the uh, increase on tobacco tax. And so that's right, yes. uh, this is something that is an attempt by the government to move towards the smoke-free New Zealand uh, goal, which is supposed to be achieved uh, within the next decade or so. And this is a, a 10% increase on the January the 1st each year uh, from 2017 to 2020. And so this kind of obviously serves a, a dual purpose, one to uh, generate income for the government in terms of uh, getting actual tax from uh, people buying cigarettes. Uh, the excuse given here was that um, these people obviously cost more per capita uh, for the government's uh, subsidise and free healthcare, but also supposedly to uh, alleviate the pressure on that same sort of healthcare system and on uh, caused by that by relatively reducing the number of people smoking. So what do you think about uh, this tax on cigarettes, Taryn? Well, on a personal level, I, of course, understand the need to eliminate smoking in New Zealand. We see it's a grave health risk for anyone. But at the same time, uh, it strikes you as a very sort of regressive sort of tax because this is obviously going to affect poorer people the most in terms of someone who's genuinely addicted and is just going to swallow that cost and possibly have less money to spend on anything else they need in their life. And um, in a very sort of pedestrian sort of budget, in a budget that's not captured the attention of many New Zealanders, this is definitely the one aspect that's caused the most debate over water coolers at work. And we've seen uh, very dramatic news headlines, the $30 pack of cigarettes, for example. So it's certainly the aspect of the budget that's made the biggest mark on the New Zealand people and the biggest uh, commotion in Parliament as well, particularly Winston Peters and New Zealand First have been very, very quick to point out their extreme 
uh, disagreement with the idea of this heavy cigarette tax. We had Winston Peters standing up and saying, uh, if smoking is as bad as people believe, um, why don't they just ban it? So they're obviously taking the view that this is far more about the money brought in than it is about any sort of uh, social health outcome for New Zealanders. And so do you think the... Um, the New Zealand First opposition is more from a stance of this policy is ineffective or from a stance uh, like we've seen from uh, the likes of David Seymour talking about the choice involved with smoke and how it's not the government's job to intervene as such. Well, of course, that's going to be the line David Seymour will take as a um, the only MP from the Libertarian Act Party in the House. And I think it's safe to say that Winston Peters is not a libertarian. And... As a much more practically-minded politician, it's more likely that he's simply looking at the effectiveness and real outcomes of this law. All right. We'll have some music now from Scott, and then we'll come back talking a little bit about the recent developments of turns of a potential coalition in the next election. So this is My Miami Horror, All It Ever Was. So that was Miami Horror, All It Ever Was on... Uh, Capital Hard Talk Radio, Wellington Access Radio, 7.83 a.m. Back to our hosts, Jack and Taryn. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm your regular Capital Hard Talk host, and we're joined here in the studio by our Europe correspondent slash uh, guest presenter, <laughs> Taryn. And so now I'm going to talk about uh, a memorandum of understanding that was released uh, in the last few days, and this is between Labour and the Greens. And so what this is... This is an agreement signed by both parties with the, the sole purpose of a dedication to change the government uh, in the general election next year. And so uh, our general election will be uh, November, was it? Uh, yes. Next year. Uh, and so that's going to be uh, for the central government. Uh, you'll have the opportunity to vote for both your general electorate seat and your list seat, uh, which both of which will make up the next government and so this sort of memorandum of understanding is not an official alliance like you'd expect so there's no definitive um agreement to join in a coalition to form a government uh from the next election but this is simply an acknowledgement of the fact that the two parties are interested in working together um to change that government and they've said specifically it's not a monogamous relationship yeah. um, and so they'll be perhaps inviting other parties and so what are your initial uh, thoughts on this Taryn? Well I think it's always important to remember that even though this agreement as both parties have been very quick to remind us is only good until the election it's important that it shows us that both Labour and the Greens are committed to working as a unified front of opposition against the National Party. We've seen they've, in this agreement, they've committed to working on opposition policy together. We've seen them committed to a no surprises rule, wherein no party of the two of them will make a large announcement without letting the other party know with some days in advance. And I think it's always important to remember as well that this sort of memorandum isn't supposed to come as a shock to people. There are no voters around there who are thinking, what, Labour and the Greens together? Well, I never. I think the main point of this agreement is that there are a lot of centrist voters out there, a lot of people who probably voted for Helen Clark when she was leader of the Labour Party and are now voting national in general elections, who maybe after eight years are looking for an alternative government, but they see Labour and the Greens unable to really coordinate together in Parliament and think, 
they just can't work together. Better to keep with National, who's quite stably supported by United Future and ACT in the Māori Party. So we think that the main issue addressed by this memorandum is people who are simply concerned about the Labour and Greens' ability to work together. And so now looking at kind of the third part of um, what's assumed to be that coalition, the New Zealand First, a party that's not necessarily been working with uh, Labour and definitely not working with the Greens, but is sometimes in the House considered to be in the opposition. Where do you think this leaves them? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk around the media about Winston Peters being cut off due to the fact that his party, New Zealand First, doesn't want to work under any circumstances with the Green Party. What do you think this means for them? Do you think that the Labour Party and the Green Party need to include New Zealand First? Well, of course, we have to see how that depends on the um, on how seats are apportioned following the next election of Parliament. But we think, of course, that given the opportunity, Labour has absolutely no reservations in working with New Zealand First. We saw this after the 2005 election, I believe it was, where the Labour Party actually lo- um, kept the Greens out of government instead of working with United Future and New Zealand First. So we think this is a very strong message to New Zealand First, that um, it's the Labour Party telling New Zealand First that they're not the only party they'll work with, that a Labour-Green government is entirely amenable to them. And we think now the big question is... If it comes to a situation where Labour needs both the Greens and New Zealand First to form a government, how Winston Peters is going to take that? Well, Winston Peters definitely is always interested in, in being the kingmaker in his own of course. words. It was last uh, election cycle when the current leader of the Labour Party, David Cunliffe, described the election as being on a knife's edge, um, assuming that he would enter a coalition with uh, the United Future and the Green Party with them as the ruling part of that coalition. Obviously, that didn't turn out uh, that well for them with the <laughs> election going convincingly to the National Party. Um, and so how do you think Winston Peters is going to react to the Green Party now being forced into this coalition? Now, um, Andrew Little, when he was being cross-examined by Paul Henry a few days ago, refused to rule out uh, knifing the Green Party um, after the general election uh, instead taking on New Zealand First as their coalition partner. Do you think it's going to be a an either-or for Labour, that they'll go with Winston Peters or with Ma- Materia and James? Because the two parties, uh, New Zealand First and the Greens, have previously uh, ruled out working with each other, particularly Winston Peters has a lot of opposition to uh, many of the policies that the Green Party's president, particularly because his the demographic he serves is primarily uh, the older people who are a vast... Uh, tears apart from the Green Party's very, very young, very, very liberal group. Do you think it's going to be an either-or for Labour Party, or do you think they can realistically go all three of them? Well, I think, first of all, it's very interesting you brought up the 2014 election, because we haven't had a lot of looking at the demographics and the reasons behind the vote recently. And we talk about Winston Peters as a kingmaker quite a lot, but I don't think anyone's really considered so far if perhaps that sort of uncertainty on whether or not Labour would have to go with New Zealand first or if they would go with the Greens that election, if that uncertainty is what led a lot of voters back to the National Party for a third term. And so I think it's fairly um, reasonable, again, to look at this as an idea of simply showing that the Labour Party is, first of all, willing to work with the left, because we've seen a lot of coverage in the past few years, especially after James Shaw was recently made co-leader, that both Labour Party and the Green Party were simply, um, you know, dividing the electorate between themselves. When the Labour Party went up, the Green Party went down and vice versa, and they weren't really tapping into the actual centrist swing vote that you need to tap into in order to win an election. So we think, first of all, this is simply more about uh, 
eliminating that sort of distinction between the two parties and showing them committed to work together and then seeing how they, as a um, unified front, can negotiate with Winston Peters. Um, Winston Peters, of course, is notoriously difficult to predict his actions. That's probably part of what leads to um, his sort of populist popularity among a lot of voters, putting their trust in Winston Peters rather than a particular party um, that would form government on its own. So um, it's really in his hands again how he's going to decide to work with this. And we've seen so far, at least, his response to this memorandum has been very, very critical. Mm. And it looks like he'd still prefer to position himself, of course, as the only party supporting Labour in government. Certainly so. And in terms of that memorandum of understanding, so far, uh, neither of the parties have ruled out a political move such as standing no or a weak candidate in certain electorates to allow uh, that candidate to definitely take a seat. We've seen other sort of alliance come from the right with ACT standing aside candidates in the Epsom electorate to allow uh, the ACT party to maintain its seat. Uh, without that seat, then they would obviously not be able to be in Parliament at all. Um, and so that, that alliance has been going on. And so the Labour and Greens have not ruled out, though they've not specifically said uh, they will be going to. They've attackfully avoided sort of questions on actually what sort of actual political moves will be happening uh, and said that they'll probably come out with those at a later date. Obviously, it's still quite early and really official campaigning for the general election hasn't even begun yet. And so getting into the real tough questions about this, how do you think this will change Labour's chances of actually forming a government? Because right now, uh, both in terms of preferred prime minister and party polling, it's not looking too good for the left in terms of uh, their ability to form a government without having uh, a large coalition that would probably involve both Labour and New Zealand first. A national still holds uh, commanding, not as commanding as it's been. It's uh, suffered some hits recently, but still, uh, nonetheless, a, a good lead. Do you think this will realistically change Labour's chances uh, of making a government? Well, certainly we first of all have to remember that the general election is still well beyond a year away, and a lot can happen in a year. But I think right now the main question that is going to answer that for us is we just need to see how well both parties actually commit to this memorandum and how well they're able to present the idea of a unified alternative. Because right now what we've often seen, um, the complaint leveled against the opposition has been that they're simply too much of an opposition, too much of simply reacting to government policy and criticizing that policy without offering too much of their own credible alternative. And of course this agreement's still less than a week old, and so we think simply if they're able to present that idea of a unified possible government in waiting, then we can convincingly probably see a lot of centrist swing voters, as you call them, mm. who are able to see that alternative and able to vote for that alternative. Yes, well, hopefully this, this at the very least, will elude some strength from the opposition. I think that's something that really has tripped up Labour over the last few years. Definitely. Uh, a lack of kind of the perception of strength. And this was hurt uh, quite recently with the Labour Party being quite fragmented over the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement with several uh, members of the Labour caucus coming out in support of it, uh, backstabbing almost uh, uh, Andrew Little, who... Uh, came out and said that his party's sole opinion was unified behind the idea that the trade deal was bad. And so hopefully with kind of uniting uh, the party and its uh, alliance members will probably start to elude some of that strength that John Key's party is, is well known for. He's been commented as being quite like Helen Clark in that sense. At least to the to the naked eye, it seems as though his caucus is quite united. Um, but that being said, obviously a lot can happen in the year. And so, in terms of actual chances right now, do you reckon that we'll be seeing a change of government? 
Um, I'm not really in the big mood of making grand predictions more than a year away, but I'll certainly say I wouldn't rule out a change of government. Excellent. And so, uh, have we got any other news coming through around the world that we think would be interesting to talk about, Taryn? Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Do you want to have a quick chat about Brexit again? Why not? It's always a lot of fun. So, for those of you who haven't been keeping up that much, in a little under three weeks now, the United Kingdom is going to be holding a referendum on their membership in the European Union. Of course, no country has ever left the European Union before, and this is certainly unprecedented territory. And just while we've got the time, we've had some very high-profile interventions, both for and against the case of the referendum. So probably the most famous uh, interventions we've had in favor of Britain staying in the European Union have come from... Uh, Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton, from most of the uh, heads of state on the European continent, such as Angela Merkel of Germany, Francois Hollande of France, um, the Spanish prime ministers and Irish prime ministers have also been in support too. Um, but of course, the most famous endorsement we've seen for Britain remaining has been President Barack Obama, who went so far as to actually give a large speech dedicated to why Britain should stay in when he went to visit London last month. And very recently, however, um, on the leave side, we've seen a very interesting endorsement from... Um, I knew we couldn't get through without mentioning his name uh, at least yep. once more in the episode, Donald Trump, who's not entirely substantively given many reasons for why he thinks Britain should leave the European Union. I feel like he just, he just necessarily has to go against Clinton and Obama if not out of practicality, probably just out of principle. Almost definitely. We had this very funny interview last, um, just one or two days ago, actually, where Trump was speaking to a journalist who asked him, Brexit, your thoughts, and Trump simply went, huh? Um, at which point the uh, reporter had to actually explain Brexit, the commonly used term for British exit, at which point Trump sort of blustered off, oh yeah, right, that's the thing, I think they should go. And that was all he had to say on the matter. But... You know, anything Trump says generally makes a couple of headlines, and this certainly did too. And so the camps, both the the yes and the no camps, leave and stay, are quite almost tied, basically. Is that still how it's going? That's still more or less how it's going. We've seen uh, in the past couple of weeks a very gradual increase to the Remain camp, but it's still certainly safe to say that most polling has it being made up by the currently undecided voters. But it's worth remembering, despite that polling disparity, if you're a betting person and look at the betting agencies, for example, we've seen odds generally in favor of remain over leave by quite convincing numbers, actually. Hmm. Well, that's excellent. We'll hopefully have you on back soon in a couple of weeks to discuss perhaps the results of this Brexit, either for or stay. And so looking forward uh, to it. That concludes our show for today here, Capital Hard Talk on Wellington Access Radio, 783 AM. I will leave you with some music, but first it's important to note that the views of Capital Hard Talk, both myself, Bennett, our guest presenters and our producers, as well as our interviewees, uh, do not share the opinions and should no way be taken as the opinions of Wellington Access Radio or any of our affiliated uh, cohorts. The opinions expressed by any of us are strictly our own and not to be taken as uh, any reflection of the views of Wellington Access Radio or any of the people we associate with. Uh, have a good afternoon and we'll see you next week. Good afternoon, my dear viewers. Unfortunately, we have to interrupt the song for a grave announcement. 
and that is that Muhammad Ali is unfortunately passed. Uh, this morning, uh, news was released to the media about him being on life support, but recently, in the last few minutes, we've heard that he is tragically passed. Our condolences go to his family and to his supporters. I uh, will keep you updated live on our Facebook news feed. Uh, good afternoon, everyone.